it is reported that at one time the Buddha in the forest reached down and picked up a handful of leaves and he held them up to the people he was speaking to and he said, which is more, the leaves in my hand or the leaves in all the forest? The answer is obvious. And he said, just so. The knowledge that I have is like the leaves in the forest. And what I have taught you is like the leaves in my hand. But he said, the leaves in my hand, or that much knowledge, is all that's needed to liberate the mind. One of the things that the Buddha taught and talked about one of the vehicles for his teaching was talking about what he understood to be ultimate realities. And he identified four phenomena which he understood to be ultimate. The mind or consciousness, the knowing faculty is one. The second is the mental attributes like mindfulness, loving-kindness, compassion, concentration, wisdom, anger, greed. These are the mental factors, another reality. The third ultimate reality is materiality or physicality, matter. And the fourth is Nibbāna condition beyond mind and matter. Here what we are doing is trying to develop the powers of mind or the ability of the mind to know these four realities. And if we know what the Buddha taught, and if we practice what the Buddha taught, we can be somewhat confident based on the experience of thousands, hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of people who have practiced this very practice and reached some stages or some understanding of the mind or liberation of mind. Tonight I want to talk about one of these ultimate realities, the other half of the mind-body process that we are. I want to talk about materiality or physicality. Here in the West, generally I think we would acknowledge that we're very material-oriented culture, society. Actually, materiality is preeminent in the West, having developed the scientific method for coming to understand the ways and nature and the laws of materiality, we have, over the past couple of centuries, accumulated or generated a tremendous amount of knowledge and skillfulness in the manipulation and working of different materials. 
and by contemporary standards have used that knowledge and information and our ability to manipulate materials to create a very high standard of living. And all of us here in this room have benefited tremendously from this knowledge. The comfort with which we are here is a direct result of our knowledge of material and how to use them and manipulate them. But I think most of us can recognize in our own life and in the conditions of the planet these days that it's a very real question that we have to ask whether we have become more free with our accumulation of material goods or whether we've actually been burdened or have entered a dysfunctional relationship with the material goods that we have. Tonight I want to talk about the material elements that we are most intimately connected with, our own body. Universally, or traditionally, we have a very strong identification with our body and how it looks, how it feels, how it smells. We're very concerned about our body's appearance. In this society, there's a high premium on youthfulness and smoothness of skin and energy and the appearance of things. And the powers of mass communication have shown us all and heavily conditioned us to believe that there is some perfect appearance, whether it be the movie stars or the actors or actresses, or if you're into cosmetic fixing-ups, then that particular brand of appearance as perfection. What effect has all of this conditioning had upon our own perceptions of our own body? Because it's the nature of the mind to compare, contrast, evaluate, judge, weigh, measure, and we hold ourselves in the balance, comparing ourselves to these images of perfection that are put out by all sorts of groups and people. And the nature of the mind is to pick one of the two as being better and the other one as being worser. And depending on where we place ourselves in comparison to the images, We're either going to take great pride in our appearance because we're better, or we're going to feel great shame in our appearance because we're worser. In either case, 
the pride or the shame that we feel in relation to our body is an unnecessary burden. In this new age, with its awareness that we are so lucky to live in, we've gotten a little more sophisticated in our approach to understanding the body and how it works. And now, rather than just the appearance, we, are, we have the understanding that we really have to have a scientifically approved body not just appearing that way, but inside also has to be just right. The heart system and the nerve system and the endo, endocrines and the glands and the this, that, and the immune system. This also has to be well developed and perfect in its own way. And I think a lot of us subscribe to a belief that if we can just get the right diet, figure out which one is right for us, get the right kind and amount of exercise, whether it's yoga or jogging or swimming or whatever, that somehow all of our systems will be in perfect harmony and it'll be wonderful forever. This is not to put down or to depreciate the necessity and the benefit of understanding how the body works and the systems of the body and bringing them into some balance and harmony and developing them so that they are useful to us. But a lot of the systems of belief that are being sold these days, if we actually look into them, they're actually very contradictory. You know, some people say you should jog, and some people say you shouldn't jog, and you should eat meat, and you shouldn't eat meat, and you should take extra vitamins, or you shouldn't take extra vitamins, and a lot more detailed than I know about. They can be so contradictory because they're each advertising or they're trying to emphasize one part over another. But none of them are really so concerned with the liberation of the mind, but rather the development of some perfection in the body. I remember many years ago when I was in just beginning practice, I was on a very, I mean, I chose some, some diet that was very strict and crazy at the time, and was living in such a place where I could eat that type of food. Essentially it was know anything that didn't grow, know anything that didn't grow, and no preservatives or spices and all these things, or dairy products. And when I came to IMS, and when it first opened, they were heavily into about the same type of food they are now, a lot of dairy, and it just really didn't set in my system well at all. And I went to one of my teachers in one of my first retreats and I was talking about how much of my meditation was taken up with all of my food trips and how difficult it was to eat the food and to, or to not eat it and to feel it and, uh, and all this. And luckily I had 
a skillful teacher who said, and I was also telling him about how my diet was such that when I went to my mother's house, my parents' house, there wasn't anything in the house I could eat. And it just created a lot of, you know, difficult social situations for myself. <laughs> and so I was telling him all this. And he said to me, something to this effect, the harm that you do to yourself by keeping to such a diet is worse than eating a hamburger occasionally. And there's wisdom in that. The attachment to the belief that I was trying to live by was more harmful than going to McDonald's every couple of months. I began to get a glimpse of what liberation of mind is as opposed to perfection of body, perfection of diet. In any event, for most of us, our beliefs in diet and physical exercise and whatnot, beneficial, helpful, necessary, but limiting. And it's good to know that for the most part, the mind isn't going to become free with attachment to belief about diet. A Bob Dylan song says something like, May you stay forever young. It's a losing battle. It can't be done. <laughs> and in fact, identification with the body can never lead to any sort of permanent happiness or contentment or satisfaction. Once when I was traveling in Upper Burma, I was with another monk about my age who could speak good English and was very energetic. And we were roaming all over this one particular mountain that is just covered with monasteries and, and nunneries. And about within walking distance, a day's walking distance, there was about 10,000 monks and nuns and hermits and solitaries and all sorts of people living on this one mountain. So we would just go wandering around here. And one day we came to this one old monastery, quite run down, and there was only two people staying there, two monks. And so we went in and one of them came out of a room and to speak with us. And I could see he was very tall for a Burmese, he was very tall, and he was extremely good looking. He was quite old, you know, 65 or something. And he was a really good looking monk. And he didn't speak English, but the other Burm the Burmese monk spoke with him. And it didn't translate what was going on. But eventually this monk showed us his quarters. And he had just, he stayed in a cave. And next to his cave, he'd built a walking room about 60 feet long, where he would just stay in his cave, sitting, and go to his walking room and walk back and forth, go back to his cave and sit and walk back and forth. And this is how he spent his whole time. Later I found out that this monk was ordained, he ordained late in life. But when he was younger, he'd been the Paul Newman of Burma. He was the, the movie star that everyone was 
after or wanted to be like, because you're so handsome, and he was, and he said, all of his, all of the people's adoration of his body and his own adoration of his appearance and his abilities and all that was such a waste of time, was so misdirected and so misguided. And after he reached 50 or 55 or something, he retired and immediately ordained and went to this place and stayed there and was just practicing to decondition his mind from his first 50 years of his life. What we're doing here for the past six or so weeks is the same thing. Gathering self-knowledge about our own mind and our own body. And as difficult as it might have been, I'm sure you've all been able to identify just how out of touch we really are with our body. What positive and negative and neutral self-images we have and how unbelievably fascinating other people's bodies are to us. How much time do we spend watching other people walk, sit, eat, whatever they do? And I'm sure we've all come across memories of great pride in who we are or what we appear to be and shame at the same. Maybe most noticeably is the changeability of our experience of our body. Sometimes comfortable, sometimes not. Sometimes hot, sometimes cold. <clears throat> sometimes hungry, sometimes full. Sometimes painful, sometimes not. Sometimes comfortable, occasionally. In any event, we also have discovered that it's not under our control. We can't really make our body do what we want it to do other than stand up, sit down. And only that some, sometimes. <laughs> and yet we still say, this is my body, and we're attached to it as if it was something that we had control over. This attachment to, or this belief in being a body is a tremendous burden, a bondage. Is there a way of relating to our physical experience of our body so that we can be free of the burden of self-judgment or the bondage of comparing ourselves to others or our attachment to our appearance and all the suffering and pain of just carrying it around? Is there some way to relate to our physical experience or our experience of our physical-ness that frees the mind? That allows the mind to be open and not constantly judging or burdened or shamed? The Buddha, in the Greater Discourse on Mindfulness, said this, For the purification of beings, for overcoming sorrow, distress, for the disappearance of pain and sadness, 
and for realization of Nibbana, or the liberation of mind. One should abide ardent, clearly aware, and mindful of the arising and vanishing phenomena in the internal body. He placed great emphasis on a right understanding of this body through clearly comprehending mindfully what our experience of it is. And as such, he identified mindfulness, or he identified materiality, as one of the four foundations for mindfulness. The other foundations being feelings, physical and mental feelings, pleasant or unpleasantness, consciousness and mental states. Materiality is one of the four foundations of mindfulness. In retreat, the instructions that you receive are to focus on the breath, either at the abdomen or the nostrils, feeling the sensations or the movement of the air. This is the body, focusing on the body. To connect with and to hold the mind on the physical phenomena as it arises, to be concurrently aware of the body as it's happening. In the beginning of practice, when the mindfulness and the concentration are weak, mostly it's quite difficult, and all of us, whether we're medical professionals or not, have quite a sophisticated understanding of the human anatomy. And for many of us, when we begin to focus on the abdomen, we don't feel sensations. We see stomach and muscles and other things moving around. And we get these images of what we think is going on there. We have, rather than feeling the movement, we have a vision or a concept of the form or the shape of the abdomen. Or sometimes we can imagine the muscles, the diaphragm doing this or this or that or that. Or if we're paying attention to the nose tip, we have some image of the air going up and in and somehow down in the back of the mouth and throat and lungs. and We get a sense of what's happening with the organs and the muscles. This is conceptual understanding of what may be going on in the body. It's not really direct perception of our experience or sensations. And in fact, most of our life is spent at this level of knowing about generally what's going on, knowing that we're walking, sitting, eating, but not really paying close enough attention to feel our experience at the time, but rather conceptually knowing what it is that we're doing. And there are infinite possibilities of manipulations of concepts that we can get lost in. But as we continue to make the effort and to be precise, diligent, and continuous we begin to connect with the rising or the in-breath and to stay with it. And we begin to feel what's actually happening there. 
we begin to observe the nature of rising and feeling the tightness or the pulling or the stretching or the vibration or the heat or cold or if we're observing at the nose tip to feel the tingling or the heat the warmth the pressure these experiences are what it's the essential nature of our material experience it's the characteristic of materiality and it's not from imagination or speculation or thinking or understanding the anatomy of the body but it's directly perceived experience the mind observing materiality in walking similarly the object is to note the lifting the moving the placing the movement of the leg what do we observe knee ankle muscles bones do we observe lifting moving placing or do we feel stretching heaviness tightness pressure pulling tingling If it's bones and muscles and ankles and foot, this is concept. If it's lifting, moving, placing, this is concept. If it's tingling, stretching, pressure, pulsing, vibration, heat, this is direct perception of material reality. Throughout the day, we're encouraged to pay attention to, to try to observe at this level of reality, the nature of our material experience in all postures, sitting here, walking in the meditation, when you lie down to go to bed, continuing practicing, sitting, walking, lying, or standing. Just good one. We all stand in lunch line for some period of time. Are we noting standing as we stand? The Buddha encouraged diligent mindfulness in all four postures. Only when we're able to observe the essential nature of our material experience can we come to know the true nature of materiality as an ultimate reality, not a composite or not a conceptual understanding. So what is the body? What is materiality or physicality? <clears throat> the word in the Buddhist language for materiality is rupa. It has a definition of being that which has the nature of change as brought about by heat or cold, <clears throat> thirst, insects, things like that. So in a composite, composite of materiality or rupa is that it can be impacted by conditions. In effect, it's the body. When the Buddha was doing his practice, he used phenomenological approach to knowing the body in that only what he could actually experience did he validate or did he come to understand is true, not based on thinking or thoughts, but only what he could feel or observe with his senses. What we're doing here is the same thing, investigating with our senses, 
what our experience of this mind and body is. And the Buddha, in his observation of the material body, identified four fundamental characteristics or traits, which he were at that time, and he also used, were metaphorically represented by the images of earth, air, fire, and water. The first of these, the earth element, and we should understand that these elements or these are metaphors for experience. They're not actual physical material things, earth, air, fire, and water, but they are the characteristics of earth. And the characteristics of earth or the earth element, is hardness or softness. So that when you are walking and you feel your foot place against the floor, the hardness of the floor is the earth element, the feeling of the earth element. And when you come in and you take and you puff up your zafu, the softness of that zafu is also the earth element. And when you sit on that zafu after a half hour or an hour, the hardness of that zafu is also the earth element. It's the element of hardness or softness that we refer to as earth or the quality of earth. Other ways that we experience earth element <clears throat> is in the sitting, when we feel rigid or stiff. This is earth element. If we feel itchy, this is also an earth element, or stinging. If you feel your clothes brushing against you as you walk and they're very gentle and soft, this is also the subtler end of experiencing the earth element. Again, we should understand that there's not an actual earth, a material element of earth that's in there, but rather it's the metaphor of earth, the hardness or softness of it, which we experience observing our materiality or observing our body. Earth element. The second is the air element. The air element is metaphor for the quality of movement or vibration or oscillation in the body. So when we move, when we breathe in the abdomen, rises, there's movement that we can feel in the body without thinking about muscles and organs. But we can feel movement. This is observing the air element. The example is given when you take a football or a basketball or a soccer ball or any ball and you pump air into it, it inflates or it distends, it gets bigger and it becomes very hard and the skin is very tight and tense. The same thing occurs in the body when you breathe in and the abdomen rises. There's a sense of movement and tightness and tension and pressure. It's the air element that supports the body in its sitting posture or that moves the arm when we want to bend or when we want to stand or sit. It's the movement of the air element that moves the body around in any pulsating or vibrating, oscillating that you feel within the body is the movement of the air element. 
The third is the fire element, or the quality of temperature. And both heat and cold, great extremes of either, are within the parameter of, or a measurement of the parameter of the fire element. And it's very easily observed as we sit here now. There is a temperature. Some of you may feel hot, you may feel cold, or somewhere in between. But any experience of heat or coolness is an observation of the fire element. Sometimes it can be experienced as great subtle heat or coolness. And sometimes, you know, hot air rises. Sometimes the sense of being very light in the body can be due to a very subtle experience of the air, of the fire element. Earth, air, fire elements. The fourth is the water element, <coughs> or the quality of cohesion or fluidity, or <coughs> contraction. Actually, cohesion or that stickiness of taffy or whatever can't actually be felt by the mind, can't be experienced directly by the mind, but it can be understood. If we were to take and put our hand into water, we could feel the temperature of it, we could feel the hardness or softness of it, and we could feel the movement of it, but we couldn't really feel the cohesion of the water, in the same way the mind can experience four, three of the four elements directly by observing the body, or feeling the body. Just before coming to give the talk, I was reading a, a book, and I came across a short thing that was appropriate to the talk. It's in The Turning Point, Fritjof Capra's book of a few years ago. And he says, subatomic particles are not made of any material substance. They have a certain mass, but this mass is a form of energy. Energy, however, is always associated with processes, with activity, and it is a measure of activity. Subatomic particles, then, are bundles of energy, or patterns, of activity. The energy patterns of the subatomic world form stable atomic and molecular structures which build up matter and give us macroscopic solid appearance, thus making us believe that it is made of some material substance. At the everyday macroscopic level, the notion of a substance is quite useful. Because we have a body, that's useful. But at the atomic level, it is no longer makes sense. Atoms consist of particles, and these particles are not made of any material stuff. When we observe them, we never see any substance which we observe. Are, we never see any substance. What we observe are dynamic patterns continually changing into one another, a continuous dance of energy. And this is the way we can understand the elements in the body, not material in themselves, but in experience of different energies, hardness, softness, temperature, movement, vibration. So what's the benefit of experiencing the body 
as an ultimate reality or a dance of energies or a dance of ultimate realities, what benefit could there be to that? If we understand that for the most part we're very attached to our body and how we think about it or how we believe it to be, and then we see that by observing its true nature makes it easier to disidentify with it, to free the mind from being stuck on or burdened by our view of who we are as a body. When we observe, as all of us do, pain in the knee or pain in the back or shoulders or something, our attachment to believing that it's my knee is very painful. Believing that it's my knee that's never going to work again, it's my shoulder that's going to be permanently crippled, or our attachment to our body makes it very difficult for us to clearly observe the true nature of the body. And it leads us, it moves us all over the place, moves us into aversion and dislike and trying to create the conditions that we feel comfortable. And our whole life is spent trying to create comfortable conditions for the body to be warm enough and to have enough food and to get the right sounds and the right taste and the right smells, and particularly to have the right touch, touches. When we can observe the nature of the body as vibrating and tingling and hot and cold, hardness, softness, tingling, whatever it is, it's very difficult to attach to any of these fleeting momentary experiences as being who I am, but rather seeing them as just a passing show of dancing energy. When I was in Burma practicing, when my practice was a little better, there was one period of time for three days when I was noting a lot of heat and burning and pressure and hardness in the head and ache and soreness and stiffness in the body and different things and couldn't sleep and restless and and I was just I was really into it and I was noting and just noting and noting and noting and not really getting too identified with what's going on. After three days I was telling somebody what was going on and they said, Well maybe you're sick. And it had never it didn't cross my mind that I was sick. <laughs> I should go to the doctor and get some medicine or take some aspirin or something. It was just so locked into just hardness, tightness, tightness. I wasn't suffering because I wasn't sick. But once they told me I was sick, you know, maybe I was sick, oh, then I had got concerned, well, maybe I better get some medicine, and oh, poor me, I wonder what it is, and when it'll go away, and is it some tropical something or other that's never going to get cured. Great suffering comes with that. I got some medicine and, sure enough, took care of it. Later, I was in Thailand, even under worse conditions. I was in a place, in an area of Thailand, where there was nobody that spoke English. And I was staying in a monastery way out in the forest. 
and there was only two other monks, and they didn't speak any Thai, any English, and I don't speak a word of Thai. Somebody had taken me there, dropped me off. I was staying for three months. <laughs> I, I saw the other two monks when we went on alms round from 6.30 to 9 each morning. We went on alms round together, ate together. I went back to my kuti a half mile away in the forest. That was it. Didn't see him again till 6.30 next morning. One day I got something for alms, ate it, I didn't know what I was eating ever in this place. <laughs> I didn't ask either. <laughs> but about noontime, started getting sick. And I was out there and or feeling really uncomfortable. And I got this excruciating headache. I didn't have any medicine on myself. And I didn't know if there was a doctor around or nothing. And I didn't know where to find anybody. And I couldn't do anything until 6.30 the next morning, when I would go see these other monks. If I couldn't be with my experience as just heat, vibration, discomfort, disliking, I would really suffer. But once I, once I said, well, so what, I'm sick, I can't do anything about it, I might as well note what's going on. No discomfort. It was hot, and it was painful, and it was disliking. But there was not the Oh, poor me, I'm so sick, or I'm so unhappy. It's not there. The mind can really become free of its identification with what we think is going on with our body. When we can pay attention to the momentariness of the dance of phenomena. Well, hmm. page three, and it's time is going by. Hmm. All right. Okay. The sense of touch, all of these elements, material elements that I've mentioned, earth, air, fire, and water, come to our experience through the sense of touch. But that's not the only materiality that we experience. Each of our senses, the sensitivity of our eye is also a material element. Visible objects or color and form is material experience. The sensitivity of our tongue and the taste are also material elements. The same with the sensitivity of the ear and sound waves, material elements. What else? <laughs> Nose, the sensitivity of the nose, and the odors and the smells that we smell, also material elements. The Buddha identified other material qualities that we experience, but for the most part, they're very subtle experiences, and only a really perceptive mind could get in touch with them. So I won't burden you with concepts of what these other material elements are, but I think you can readily recognize the earth, air, fire elements, visible objects, sound, taste, smells, as material experience. Because these colors and smells and taste and touch are so easily identified with and so easily attached to, 
it's helpful to know a little bit more about them. One of the things that we should understand, that's very important actually to understand, is that materiality in and of itself is not wholesome or unwholesome. It just is what it is. It's an ultimate reality just bubbling along. It's the mind which is filled with wholesomeness or unwholesomeness. And based on the quality of mind, we can attach to physical experience or we can be averse to it. The physical experience itself is neutral. doesn't have a quality of wholesomeness or unwholesomeness. If it, was, if it wasn't that way, if the body or sight, sound, smells were always unwholesome, how could anyone ever free the mind? How could one ever become enlightened? After the Buddha's enlightenment, he could still smell and taste and feel sensations. And, but his mind was free, his relationship to his material experiences was one of neither attachment nor aversion, but clear seeing and understanding. So, knowing that, we can realize that we don't have to go about trying to eliminate any experience. You don't have to walk with your eyes closed. You don't have to keep a nose plug on or earplugs in. Because that isn't the source of freedom of mind or liberation of the mind. But it's the relationship you have to your experience, your sensory experience, that determines whether the mind is free or not. The Buddha did suggest that when you're going to train the mind or when you're going to try to develop mindfulness and wisdom, that you go to a secluded place where it is less quiet and less sense stimulation so that you can be less distracted by these things. Not because they in and of themselves are unwholesome or wrong or bad, or but it's the relationship to them that is. So material experience in and of themselves are neither wholesome or unwholesome. Where do they come from? What determines our experience of pain or pleasure or softness or hardness or tingling or itching? Where do these... what is the genesis of these experiences? In The Buddha didn't attempt to explain the ultimate origin of materiality. He just took it for granted and assumed that everyone else would, that material materiality exists. And then began looking at what knowledge was necessary to free one from the burden or attachment or aversion to it. The Buddha identified four causes as conditions for the arising of our physical experience. And the first, and all of you here, as I enumerate them, will recognize these causes in your own experience. And the first is karma. We are born with, or when we take rebirth, we're born into a potential that sprouts and grows into this 
human body that has these senses, these material bases which can experience other materiality, colors and tastes and smells and sounds, etc. And our experience of pleasantness and unpleasantness in this, experience, in this lifetime is the result of past actions, whether they're wholesome or unwholesome, determines whether we have pleasant or unpleasant sensory experiences. So we can see that karma produces some of our physical experience. The mind is also another source of physical experience. When we get angry, what happens? The body gets tight, hot, tense, red in the face. These material changes are due to the aversion or the anger or the hatred in the mind. The mind is so powerful that it can cause the body to change, to become hot, to become cold. Or when we're in love, the body feels so light, so open, so tingly. When great love is in the mind, the body is affected. When we, have, when we experience fear, maybe we go numb, get cold, contract. Again, the mind is producing or conditioning physical experience. Another is the seasonal conditions. If it's hot outside, the body sweats, gets hot itself, maybe gets itchy, prickly heat. Or when it's cold outside, the body contracts, we get goosebumps. When we eat, another source of physical change in the body, physical experience in the body, feeling full. If you eat too much, you feel full and pressure, heavy, logi. Or sometimes if you eat good food, like in the story last night, maybe you feel very light, joyous, happy. So these are four sources for, or sources are as conditions for experience of materiality. Karma, the mind, seasonal temperatures, and food, or the nutritive essence of food. You can see in your own experience some of these in operation, or you may know that this experience of heaviness is because I ate too much, or the pressure in my abdomen is I ate too much, or not eating, feeling hungry, or some other sensations in the body, or when it's hot or cold, you can know the source of the experience. You might notice that of those four sources or four conditions for the arising of materiality, there's no you or no me there that's causing it. And this is a very liberating or freeing understanding because we're not responsible for our physical experience. We don't make it happen. If there is love in the mind, yes, we may experience something that's more pleasant than when there's anger in the mind. But there's no I that can create our physical experience to be what we want. Another element or another understanding of materiality 
is that it's the material experiences that the mind grabs onto, either with attachment or aversion. The material themselves, or the colors, the shapes, the sounds, the smells, they're not defiled. It's the mind that's defiled in relationship to them. So what happens? When the, for example, when sound waves come to the ear, the sound waves come to the ear, they strike the ear, hearing consciousness arises, and we reflect on what it is we've heard. And at some point, we conceptualize, we begin to conceptualize where that sound came from. So when somebody comes stomping into the hall, and we're carefully being mindless, we don't note hearing, we don't note reflecting, we don't note disliking. All we note is somebody stomping in the hall, they shouldn't be doing that. I'm angry. I should write a note to the teacher. Five minutes later, after all the anger, the tightness, the heat, and all that has gone by unnoted, we forget about it and say, oh, breath, right, rising, falling. <laughs> Wouldn't it be easier to just note hearing, hearing, and let it go at that? Really? <laughs> <laughs> or, we see this color float by, we don't note that. We don't note the second look that we take. We don't note reflecting, thinking, planning, scheming. Pretty soon we have ourselves a full-fledged relationship with this color that went by. And then we're writing notes and maybe not writing notes and the mind is really stirred up for an hour or two or a day or for some unlucky people most of the retreat. <laughs> there have been people who spend most of the retreat fantasizing about some other color walking by. Wouldn't it be better to note seeing, seeing, <laughs> seeing, and let it go at that? Well, I had a lot more to say, but what we're doing here is actually coming to experience more of the true nature of our physical existence, bringing our mind closer to our actual experience of the body, and not our conceptual understanding of it, or how it should be, or what we'd like it to be. And the mindfulness is like a little thing that pokes holes in our delusion or confusion about what we are as a body. I had a 
perfect image of just that very process just an hour or so ago. After I'd finished my talk, I walked down to the pond, and it was perfectly still. The pond was just like a mirror, and the clouds were gray and of single color. And so the reflection, there's no color, the leaves are all off, but the reflection in the pond of the opposite shore was perfect, not distorted a bit. And so I got fascinated by it, and I was looking to see which was clearer, the reflection or the actual trees. And so I turned, I stood kind of on my head, you know, I turned my head upside down, and I was looking at what appeared to be the sky as being real close, where the water is, that close, and the water being as deep as the sky is high. And I was just getting into this strange kind of illusion and confusion. I was really just having great fun playing with this image and just goofing. And it started to rain. And I was still like this, and it started to rain. And the image of what was the trees in the sky just got totally obscured and disappeared in the raindrops bouncing on the water. And it brought me right back to reality so to speak. Mindfulness does the same thing. It just pokes holes in your illusion of who you think you are, what you think this body is. And if you poke enough holes in this imagination, welcome to reality. Sometimes, once in a while, you get shown the light in the strangest places, if you look at it right. And that's what we're doing here. So please try. So let's sit for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.